Our Father, we have just sung of the greatness of Christ. Christ that deserves to be crowned with many crowns. The greatest crown of all, the crown of glory, the, the crown of deity, the crown that enables Him to sit at Your right hand and rule all things as co-regent in the heavens with You. And we have sung not only of the greatness of His glory, but we have sung of His humility, His robes, His righteousness that He accomplished on this earth, imputed to us, not just as a gift, but imputed to us because of His death, because of His resurrection, because He was condemned by you, as we have just sung, as though His foe. He, as though I, accursed and left alone, I, as though he embraced and welcomed home. Father, might that be our hope and our confidence this morning as we worship. And as we come to this familiar passage in this familiar story in anticipation of Resurrection Sunday next week, might our hearts, even as we again have just sung, might our hearts cling to this Christ who is our solitary hope. We pray this in his name. Amen. Some of the greatest adventures in the history of the world have been the trips that men have taken to the moon. And while we look back at the ventures with a sense of awe because of the technology that got the astronauts there, it's not quite the kind of technology that we have today. In fact, I'm told that if you get one of those little greeting cards that plays a song when you open it, you have in your hand more technology than got the men to the moon. It's really quite astounding how they got there. And their quests to go to the moon were filled with tremendous uncertainty. There was so much uncertainty that prior to the safe arrival and departure of Apollo 11 from the moon, presidential speechwriter William Sapphire wrote a short memo that was to be read by President Nixon should the astronauts Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin become stranded on the moon, unable to return to Earth. This, I am told, I believe, is at the Nixon Library in California. In part, what Sapphire wrote was this. Fate has ordained that the men who went to the moon to explore in peace will stay on the moon to rest in peace. These brave men, Neil Armstrong and Edwin Aldrin, know that there is no hope for their recovery. But they also know that there is hope for mankind in their sacrifice. These two men laying down their lives in mankind's most noble goal, the search for truth and understanding. Well, that letter was never read by President Nixon because they made it to the moon and they made it off the moon. They were graced to make it safely there and make it safely home. But you have to appreciate the kind of planning and foresight, preparation that went into that venture, anticipating everything, including the possibility that they might not make it home. Of far greater significance is the preparation that Jesus Christ made for his crucifixion and his resurrection. 
One week prior to his resurrection and a few days prior to his crucifixion, he was widely celebrated as the Messiah who entered the streets of Jerusalem. There was a public proclamation and a a public preparation from the events that followed that entry. But one day prior to that grand entry, Jesus also prepared his followers for what was coming when he shared a meal with the twelve and a few others. In the privacy of that home and around that meal, preparations for his crucifixion were underway as Mary anointed Jesus with a burial oil, a burial perfume. And along with that preparation, then hearts were exposed. What do we believe about this Jesus? As one writer has noted, the account of the anointing is at the heart of a ta- is at the heart a tale of contrasts. On the one hand is Mary's lavish devotion to Jesus, on the other the looming prospect of Judas' betrayal of his master. In another contrast, the man whom Jesus raised from the dead, Lazarus, takes part in the dinner while Jesus himself is anointed for burial. This is the time for a devotion or antagonism toward Jesus to come to the fore. The narrative enters a crucial phase. Along with all the other details of the story that emanate around John chapter 12 and the preparations that are made for Christ's crucifixion, in this story we see what people really thought about Jesus. And so here is the lesson of the story that we want to be attentive to today When our lives intersect with Christ, the character of our worship is going to be quickly revealed. When you encounter Jesus Christ, what you really think about Him is exposed. The nature of what you worship is exposed for better or for ill. And in this brief account of Christ's anointing, we are going to see six pictures of varied responses to Christ. Here are six pictures of people who worshipped in a variety of ways, each revealing the character of their heart, the nature of their hearts, their interaction with God, their preparation to interact with God. Some were devoted to Him. Others were distracted from Him. But note this, all were worshippers. Some were devoted and true worshippers, while others were distracted and false worshippers. And as we consider these responses, we might be asking ourselves this question this morning. What is the state of my worship of Christ? Am I devoted to Him? How deep is my devotion? Or am I distracted? And what is keeping me from joyful devotion? Again, when our lives intersect with Christ, the character of our worship is quickly revealed. Somewhere in your notes, I forgot to put a little blank for you to kind of give you context and some room to do some writing. So on the margin or on the back or on the side or somewhere, um, just a couple things to give you the context in which this event happened. Verse 1, Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover came to Bethany. Six days before the Passover, Passover was on the following Friday, starting on the following Friday evening. So this is Saturday evening. We believe that Jesus may have traveled Friday during the day to Bethany 
and then enjoyed the Passover, or excuse me, enjoyed the Sabbath there, and then at the conclusion of the Sabbath on Saturday evening, engaged in this meal. This was probably something of a thank you meal, a meal to recognize Lazarus. We understand not only is Lazarus there, but Lazarus is with Jesus Christ. He's alongside him, so he's one of the preeminent people at this table. And notice this, that as this meal is being practiced, it is in violation of what the chief priests have said they were to do. Verse 55, the Passover was near. Many are going uh, to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They're seeking for Jesus. Verse 56, they're trying to determine what, what, what do we think about this Jesus. Verse 57, now the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. Now, six days before the Passover, they get together and no one reports. They're... Having this meal, not just in celebration of Jesus and gratitude for his raising Lazarus from the dead, that thank you meal, but they are doing it despite the warnings of the religious leaders in opposition to the religious leaders, in fact, in rebellion against them. John is not clear where the dinner is hosted. He just notes here in verse 2, they made him supper there. We know from Matthew 26, 6 and from Mark 14, 3 that Simon the leper was the one that was hosting the meal. Now, Simon was one of those unfortunate men that was denoted, indicated who he was by something that he had suffered in his life. So for the rest of his life, he carried this name, Simon the leper. Uh, He evidently had been healed because people were in his house. And no one would be with a leper. So he evidently had been healed. And it is safe to assume, though we don't know this from the biblical text, that Christ is the one that healed him. And so Simon is there. The twelve are there. Mary and Martha and Lazarus are there. Some 17 people at least are there. And again, John notes that they made him supper there. It's at Simon's house. Simon is singular. They is plural. So who else is there Hosting the meal, likely we're to understand that Mary and Martha were hosting along with Simon. So maybe Simon, Simon had made his place available and Mary and Martha brought the grub. I don't know, uh, but they were working together to host this meal. At least 17 people are there. Jesus, the 12, Simon, Lazarus, and Lazarus' two sisters. It was probably a typical kind of feast, so they would have had... At least three tables um, set up together. They would have been long tables and they would have had little cushions that they would have laid on as they were eating. So the tables were low. They would typically prop themselves up with their left hand or left hand or left arm next to the table or stretched out from the table. And then they'd use the right hand to reach across, grab the food, and they would eat. So the tables are lengthwise and in a square with one end of the square open that people could come and give food and put food on the tables that would be eaten from, and then they would be extended out, laying prone as they were eating. As they would have entered the house, a servant would have undoubtedly washed their feet. And then it would have been very typical that at some point during the meal that someone, a servant, would have come alongside and also anointed the guest's head uh, with olive oil. And that is what gets turned ever so slightly and ever so significantly in this story. Um, 
this story, this event, this anointing may have been anticipatory of what is promised in the psalmist. You prepare in the Psalms, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil and my cup overflows. So there they are in Bethany, Jesus and 16 others at the home of Simon, the leper engaged in the meal. Verse 2, let us see the first response. The response of Martha, a picture of grateful service. Verse 2, they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving. We see Martha three times in the New Testament. She's mentioned particularly three times in doing things. Two of those times, she is serving. The first time she's serving, she is... She's doing what she loves to do, but she's not happy about it. Luke chapter 10. She's serving a meal. Jesus is there. And where is Mary? Mary's not helping Martha. Luke 10, 39. She had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all of her preparations And she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. The Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary, for Martha has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken Away from her. And Jesus, with those gentle words, corrects her. What was wrong was not her service, but her manner of service. We see her in John chapter 11 again. And now in John chapter 12, we see her again. And again, she's serving. But notice that's all it says Martha was serving. But I think Martha is changed. I think that for a couple of reasons. If you turn back just a page, maybe two in your Bible, to chapter 11. This is the account of Lazarus' resurrection. And this is the other time where Martha is highlighted. Lazarus has died. And the account says this. Verse 20. Martha, therefore... When she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Honestly, if all we had was Luke 10, you would think that would be flipped, wouldn't you? Because Mary was the one that was at the feet of Jesus. Mary was the one that you would expect would be running to see him. But Mary stays at the house. Mary's the one that continues to grieve. Mary's the one that continues to lament. And Martha runs to Jesus. And Martha said to Jesus, verse 21, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give to you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And then the story goes from there. Something between Luke 10 and John 11 changed. And so then they saw 
Lazarus get resurrected by the end of the story and now they're gathering by the end of John 11 and now they're gathering in chapter 12 and Martha again is serving and I think she is serving with a whole new disposition. We find here no complaint from Martha. She's not lamenting Jesus. Would you tell Mary to get up? And Jesus doesn't correct her for her service. It's not wrong to serve Jesus. It's good to serve Jesus. Just serve with the right heart. So Mary, or excuse me, Martha is corrected. Martha is demonstrating trust. Martha has learned her service is appropriate. It is a reminder to us that following Jesus Christ means serving Christ. He is the master and we are the servants And we are servants that demonstrate a genuine faith in Him when we graciously serve. This is what Jesus Himself told us. Mark chapter 9. Sitting down, He called the twelve and He said to them, If anyone wants to be first, who shall be last of all and servant of all. Just a chapter later, chapter 10 in verse 43, He says this, It is not this way... But it is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. Why? Because even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The the life of the believer in Jesus Christ is a life of service. Mary was not wrong for serving. She was wrong in chapter 10, not for her service, but the attitude in service. And here we find that has been changed. Service for the believer means an end to ourselves. In fact, we read this earlier this morning from John chapter 12, didn't we? Verse 24, truly I say to you, truly, truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. You have to die if you want to bear fruit. And what does it mean to die? It means to to, uh, lose our life. Verse 25, he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. And if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. The life of the believer is the life of service. And here's the irony. When we serve him, notice what he says, 1226, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Through the life of serving Jesus Christ, we get honor, we get delight. And so we find from the example of Martha, alluded to most briefly in this story, the reminder of cultivating service from a heart of gratitude for Jesus Christ. I want you to notice the second response in this story. It's Mary. We find her in verse 3 as a picture of passionate devotion to Jesus Christ. This is the heart of the story. Everything hinges around this verse. It is not the lengthiest part of the story. The interaction with Judas encompasses four verses. That part is much longer. But this is the heart. This is the center of the story. This is the important part of the story. And what do we find? Verse 3, Mary then took a pound, a very costly perfume of pure nard. This would have not just been a pound, 16 ounces, but a pound according to the Roman weight, which was about 12 ounces. It's pure perfume. It is pure. It is undiluted. 
And it is used for anointing. But notice that she, it's, the text tells us that he, she anointed the feet of Jesus. Typically, it was not unusual for a meal like this for someone to have anointing going on. But the anointing would have been done on the head, not by this costly perfume, but by an olive oil. The, the texts in Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus' head was also anointed by this oil, by Mary. And so the indication probably is that she started from his head and took that oil and just poured it all the way down from head, down his body, down to his feet, finished at his feet, and finished there on his feet. The head was the place of honor. The feet was the place of humility. And that is where she finished. She finished pouring, kneeling down undoubtedly before him, pouring it on his feet. The perfume was made from a nard plant. It would have been imported from India. Judas helpfully tells us in verse 5 that it would have been worth 300 denarii. That would have been about a year's wage for the average laborer. So put it in today's term, what's that? Uh, I don't know, a guess, $40,000, $50,000. Not an insignificant cost for the perfume. It was expensive because... The plant from which it was extracted had very little liquid and it would have taken a tremendous amount of plants and a significant amount of labor to extract the perfume that it would have taken to, to make a pound of that perfume. And then it was imported from India from a tremendous distance away. So it was very costly. Just for grins this week, I thought, I wonder how much perfume costs today. I mean, I know what I buy for Regine. It's kind of out, not quite in that class. The most expensive perfume in the world today is, I'm going to guess at, this, at the pronunciation, Shamuk by Nabil. It's made of rose and sandalwood and costs one and a half million pounds. There are some packaging costs involved with it as well. The bottle is made of 3,500 diamonds and pearls, two and a half kilograms of 18 karat gold, and 5.9 kilograms of silver. So the cost is not all quite in the perfume itself. One of the most expensive perfumes without the accessorized bottle is Chanel Number no. 5 weighing in at $3,500. So the perfume that Mary used would have been certainly comparable to some of our more expensive perfumes today. What's extraordinary, though, is not the value of the perfume, nor how she acquired it, or how much of her net worth it accounted for, but how she used it. Mark tells us that she not only poured the perfume over Jesus, but that she broke the neck of the flask. Now she's committed. There's no putting the stopper in and saving a little bit for later. It all has to be used today in that moment. Her lavish gift was used by her to express a lavish love. You might even call it unrestrained love. Judas, I wrote in my notes, Judas was appalled. I think Judas was apoplectic. But it caught the notice of everybody else as well. I mean, this was, this was astounding. 
This was an astounding use of wealth that was consumed in a moment. But pouring the oil was not the most extreme thing that Mary did in that moment. Notice what the text tells us. Verse 3. She took the pound of pure nard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. Astounding. In fact, both times that this anointing is mentioned in the biblical account, in chapter 11 and then again in chapter 12, the drying of his feet with her hair is also mentioned. And what the writers would have us to know is it's not just the extravagance of the gift, it's the humility of her care of him. For there was nothing more honorable to a woman than her hair. Corinthians tells us that it is a woman's crown and glory, her hair. And this this act was highly dishonorable. It was dishonorable on multiple levels. It was dishonorable, first of all, that she would take her hair and undo it and let it down in public. Now, you may not think about that, but in that culture and at that day, for her to pull her hair down, to let her hair down, to untie her hair, would have been wholly shameful, disgracing. And then to use that hair to dry anything would have been further shame, and to dry, to dry the feet would have been the greatest shame of all. Her most valuable possession... Watch this. Her most valuable possession she used to anoint Jesus' feet and her most honorable personal quality she used to dry his feet. She gave everything she had. There was no expense too great, no service too menial to express her love for her Savior. Those two acts, the pouring of the perfume... And the wiping of the feet combined to picture one who gave liberally, sacrificially, passionately, and humbly. Just how remarkable is that? Just compare that to the disciples just a few days later. The Feast of the Passover. Before the Feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, 13.1, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, And during the supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Jesus Iscariot to betray him, Jesus, knowing that his father had given all things to himself, verse 4, got up from supper, laid aside his garments, taking a towel, girded himself, and he washed the disciples' feet. Frankly, that should have happened when they came into the room. And none of them did it. The twelve who had been with him were not interested in wiping his feet or anyone else's. And Mary wipes his feet with her hair. And by recounting this astounding act, we have a picture of one who is compelled by Christ's love. Her devotion for Christ exhibits that she is unrestrained in her devotion to Him. You know, isn't it true that after time... 
that when we love someone, it becomes a little more calculating, a little more practical, a little more reasoned. The cost is counted. I don't want to go too extreme. And the more Mary was with Jesus, the more extreme the exhibition of her love for him was. There's nothing calculating in Mary's act of love. There's, there's nothing restrained. While it was planned, her act wasn't quote-unquote sensible. It wasn't, the, it wasn't the sensible thing to do. It wasn't the reasonable thing to do, but it was the passionate thing to do. Genuine love will give no matter what the cost and will find joy in paying the cost. Here's a question for us. Are you extravagant in your love for Christ? Are you passionate in your love for Christ? I was thinking this week about, Don, your message from a couple of weeks ago, Revelation chapter 2 about the Ephesian church where Christ says of them, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Have you left your first love of Jesus? Or is your love passionate, inflamed, magnanimous, and generous? Do our affections, our desires for Christ demonstrate a joyful desire to serve Him and give to Him? Says one writer, love cares nothing about expense. It cares nothing about what other people think. It cares only about the object of that love. Worship is what naturally proceeds from a heart that has been transformed by love. I want you to notice one other thing from that verse. Look again, verse 3, end of the verse. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, some of you cynics might be saying, well, I hope so. I mean, that kind of cost, 50 grand for a bottle of perfume. I hope you can smell it. I think the idea is that that perfume just absolutely saturated that house. It just permeated it. Why? Because Jesus is covered in it. Right? Who else is covered in it? Mary. I think Mary... Don't know this from the text, but it's reasonable to assume. I think Mary got up from wiping Jesus' feet and then she went to help her sister. And Mary's walking around the house. The perfume that she used to anoint Jesus and anoint his feet now in her hair and wherever she walked is the perfume. Might I stretch the analogy just a bit? The perfume of Jesus, the fragrance of Christ. Every time she walked by, They were reminded as they sniffed the air that was left in her wake, she's been with Jesus. It is not dissimilar to what Paul writes to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15. We are the fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to the one an aroma from death to death and to the other an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? When Mary had been with Jesus, everybody knew it because they could smell it. Have you been with Jesus? And can people smell it on you that you've been with him? One final observation. It's not in John's account, but it is in Matthew and Mark's. 
And they both say that Jesus said that wherever the gospel would be preached, Mary's action would be spoken of in memory of her. The the fragrance of Mary's life is still being detected. The extravagance of her life is still being observed. Is it going to cost you to serve Jesus Christ? Undoubtedly. Is it going to cost you greatly? Undoubtedly. But great sacrifices for Christ leave a memorable legacy for our families and for ages of believers to come. When you serve Christ, it's memorable. And people use it to follow after Him as well. That's the heart of the story. That's the key to the story. That's that's the most significant part of the story. Notice four more responses starting in verses 4 to 6 with Judas. Judas, a picture of angry resentment against Christ. Verse 4, Mary has poured, Mary has wiped. The house is filled with this fragrance. Judas smells it. Judas sees it. Judas is there. Verse 4, but Judas Iscariot. Stop there. There's lots of contrasts in the scriptures, aren't there? And lots of contrasts that give us hope. This is, this is a contrast that has to be absolutely one of the most tragic but statements in the Bible. In her love for Jesus Christ, Mary honors the one who is about to die. In his greed, Judas brings about his own death. Every time Judas' name appears in the scriptures, his betrayal is mentioned. What he did is so abhorrent, even his defining act becomes the defining quality of his life. It becomes his nature. To be a Judas is what? To be a traitor. It's known not just in biblical circles, but it's known in our culture as as well. And here we have that idea introduced with that simple contrastive, but Judas. Judas is the anti-Mary. Judas is the contrast to Mary. Judas is the one who is opposed in character, in deed, in nature to Mary. And John, John is using this as another, another stepping stone to building the case against Judas. He tells us in chapter six that he was a devil. He tells us here in chapter 12 that he is only an outwardly moral person, only seemingly an outwardly moral person. He also tells us here that he is a selfish thief. He tells us in chapter 13 that he is a hypocrite, and he culminates in chapter 17 by saying he's a son of perdition. He is absolutely on the outs. But then notice the next way that he describes him. But Judas Iscariot, in contrast to Mary, Mary, Judas Iscariot acts. Who is Judas Iscariot? One of his disciples. He's one of his disciples. He's one of the twelve. He's one of the inner crowd. He heard all of the teaching. He saw all of the miracles. He went on every trip. He was even entrusted with responsibility. If they did a, where will the disciples be in 25 years survey before they disbanded? They would have picked Judas to be the most successful of the disciples. He was the one that had it all together. He was the accountant. He was the one who 
He was the one you could trust. You're going to trust Peter? Uh, thank you. No, he's a little too phlegmatic with the money. We don't trust him. But they trusted Judas. Friends, it is possible to be near Christ and not belong to Christ. That's the sad tale of Judas. In fact, if you read further on in this chapter, again, we read it earlier, verse 42. Nevertheless, many of even of the rulers believed in him, the ruling class, the Sanhedrin. They believed in him, not just some. John tells us many. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue because they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. They saw him, they heard him. Cognitively they believed, but they would not assent. They would not declare. They were around him, they interacted with him, and they did not believe. And so what Jesus said at the beginning of his ministry is true, isn't it? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my father who is in heaven, that one will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons in your name perform many miracles? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. It's possible to be near to Christ without knowing Christ and belonging to Christ. Bible history and church history are filled with people who are like Judas. Demas, having loved this present world, has gone to Thessalonica. If it wasn't for that sentence, you would have assumed from everything else that Paul wrote about Demas that he was one of the the choice men. He was part of, part of Paul's inner circle. He went on multiple trips with Paul. He's mentioned multiple times in Paul's letters. And he loved this world. And he left the Savior. They went out from us, John says in 1 John chapter 2, because they were not of us. They left. They wandered away. Unnamed people who are not captivated by Christ. Bible history is filled with it and church history as well. Men like Charles Templeton, who was as renowned and widely used by Youth for Christ as their other young evangelist, Billy Graham. But he began believing that the, that the Scriptures were not true, the Scriptures were not accurate, and he walked away from Christ and died in that condition. And in our own generation, people like Joshua Harris and Jen Hatmaker and, and, and people you know, people I know. Just because you're in this church doesn't mean you're in Christ. And if you are here this morning and you are not sure that you are in Christ Make sure that you're not one of those that is around Jesus without believing in Jesus. Make your faith sure. Jesus tells us 
what we must do and we what we must do is we must believe John chapter 3 for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life verse 18 he who believes in him is not judged and he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. You must believe in the name. You must believe in the person. You must believe in the work of Jesus Christ. And then verse 36, And he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not believe in the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Oh, friend, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, can I, can I just urge you, can I, can I call you to repentance? Your sin will not satisfy, but Christ will flee to Him, run to Him, embrace Him as the only means by which God will forgive you of your sin. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. He died on the cross to liberate you from the power of sin. Oh friend, if you don't believe, you must believe. Believe today. Don't be a Judas. Don't hang around Jesus. It's not enough to hang around. You must believe in Him. Notice something else about about Judas. Verse 4, he's around Jesus, but his intention is not to believe in Jesus, to follow Jesus, to encourage Jesus, to disseminate the truth of Jesus' message, but his intention, end of the verse, who was intending to betray him. This betrayal is not impulsive. Judas didn't get to this day and say, that's it. I wanted that money. I didn't get the money. Now I'm betraying. The plan was already laid. And this was merely the last evidence of his dissatisfaction with Christ. And his dissatisfaction was what? I want gold rather than God. I want money rather than the manna of Christ. He had a greedy desire. I wanted the money. I didn't get it. And so he became angry. He became resentful. And he betrayed Christ to get what he wanted. Oh, he was conniving, stealthy. He attempted to shield others from the reality of his heart. Verse 5, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and, and given to the poor? I mean, it sounds pretty reasonable. I mean, we could have we given, given this away. We could have helped a whole lot of poor people with, with 50 grand, today's terms. And he was persuasive. He wasn't just saying it. People believed him. Mark chapter 14 tells us, The perfume might have been sold, he says, for over 300 denarii, the money given to the poor. And they, plural, were scolding her, Mary. So it wasn't just Judas that turned on Mary, but the whole group around the table turns against her. 
we know from verse 5 that he's aware of the needs of the poor people, right? He, he knows there's a real genuine need out there. Right? Let, let's give the money to the poor. He knows about the need. He just doesn't care. Verse 6, he said this not because he was concerned, but because he was a thief. D.A. Carson says, like the hired hand, he cares nothing for the sheep. His only concern is to indulge the flesh. He would not sacrifice for others. Others were always only used as a means to indulge himself. Notice this as well. Verse 6. He was a thief as he had the money box. He used to pilfer what was put into it. It wasn't a one-time deal. This was a regular deal. He was regularly dipping his hand into that box and taking money out. And using it for himself in some way. We don't know what he used it on. Had to be awfully careful, didn't he? I mean, he he can't be with the other 11 and Jesus and appear to be ostentatious. It's not like he can go out and buy a new robe and say, Hey, Judas, where'd you get the robe? I mean, ours are kind of beat up and torn up. How did you get the new duds? I mean, he can't do that. He's doing something. Where he's gaining the money and using it on himself, using it for himself, hoarding it perhaps for himself. And his heart's being revealed. It's a consistent pattern of his life. From a human perspective, his betrayal was rooted in unchecked lust. He allowed the lust of the flesh to keep him from seeing Christ. Oh, friends. Our world glitters, but it's fool's gold. Don't be distracted from the reality of the limitless treasures that have be found, are to be found in Christ. There's a fourth response. We're going to move a lot faster now. We have to. I just noticed. The response of the twelve, a picture of wavering sentiments of Christ. John doesn't say anything about how others responded, but Mark tells us, Mark chapter 14, that others were disgruntled about the effects of Jesus. They were reproving her. They were correcting her. Matthew is even more blunt. Matthew chapter 26, verse 8, the disciples were indignant when they saw this. And the disciples said, why this waste? The disciples joined in with Judas. For all of their devotion to Jesus Christ, the disciples until after the resurrection regularly were wavering in faith. It's, and, and frankly, friends, this is, this is helpful to me and I trust encouraging to you as well. It's a reminder about the difficulty of progressive sanctification. It doesn't happen in an instant. It's not like some great event happens and you go, okay, instant perfect. It's progressive, it's halting, sometimes forward, sometimes backward, sometimes up, sometimes down. And brothers and sisters, when you fail, like the disciples did in this instant, don't see it as final. There is forgiveness for every sin. Confess it, appropriate the grace of Christ, and then persist in living like Him and for Him. The Lord knows that we are frail. He has demanded of us perfection. 
That's the only way to please him. Perfection. And he knows we can't. So he provided one who can and did. And that's our hope. Not that I will be perfect, but that Christ was perfect for me. And now, because we have the perfection that we need in Christ, our concern is direction, not perfection. The disciples were concerned about the wastefulness. Jesus corrects them and says, Let her alone, that she may keep it for the day of my burial. The keeping for the day of burial is not that she can do something in the future, like a few days from now. We don't know this. It's, it's reading something into the text. It's reading, as Keith says, something into the white spaces. But evidently, she had been preserving this. To use it on Jesus. And she had been anticipating using it for his burial. And something indicated to her that now's the time. And that's all Jesus means by that. Let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. She, she's prepared my body for burial by the use of this perfume. And then he says, for the poor you always have with you, but do not, you do not always have me. He is not denigrating the poor. He's not being dismissive of the poor. He's not Judas who doesn't care about them. But he is asserting that there are ongoing opportunities with the poor and there are limited opportunities with him. There was a small window of time for unique acts of love for Christ. And Mary didn't miss it, but the disciples did. And Jesus is encouraging them that the time for acting on his behalf is short, take advantage. While Mary's act can't be replicated today, there is still much that we can do that will honor Him. We will waver in our faith when we act as if we have a long time. We don't. Time is short. Don't waste your time. Don't waste your opportunities to serve Christ with a wavering sentiment for him. There's a fifth response. The crowds very quickly, verses 9 to 11. The crowd of Jesus, when they learned that he was there, they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Jesus. Here they have a curious belief in Jesus. Notice they're coming not just for Jesus, but they're coming also for Lazarus. They're lumping Jesus and Lazarus in the same pile. They're they're kind of the same. And they want him. And it's it's on the surface it's kind of compelling to say well a large crowd has come. A large crowd is interested in Jesus, but be careful when the crowds come, they almost always in the book of John end up turning away from Jesus. It happened in chapter 6, verse 66. It happened again when the crowd came in chapter 8. And it would happen again in this chapter. The crowds come here and they seem to be indicating belief. And then we read verse 37. But though he had performed many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. Oh, there were some, we know that from the text, there were some, verse 11, but they didn't stay. 
In fact, this designation, the large crowd of the Jews, when that little phrase of the Jews is used by the New Testament gospel writers, it almost always refers to those who did not accept, did not follow after Jesus. They really didn't want Jesus. The chief priests and leaders certainly did in verse 10, so they planned to put Lazarus to death. We can quell all this. We can put it all down if we just kill Lazarus. And if Lazarus is gone, then our problem is gone. Nobody will really believe. Why would they say that? Because they're really just curious. They really don't have a heart for him. The crowds look at Christ. They don't see him. They're distracted by curiosities. Please take away our hunger. Please take away our sickness. Please take away political oppression. Please, 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 please. They just want Jesus for temporal ease. They want Jesus for blessings, but they really don't want Jesus for their Savior from sin. All men are going to be judged to be one of two kinds of people. Those who are devoted to Christ are distracted and uncaring about Him. And those who affirm curiosity without transformation will not be His. Oh, friend, don't be part of the crowd. Who's just curious about Him. One last response. Lazarus. A picture of transforming grace. I'm going to tell you everything that we know about Lazarus. Everything that the New Testament tells us about Lazarus. Ready? He got sick. He died. He was resuscitated. That's it. We don't know anything else. For everything, you know, a chapter and a half in the book of John revolves around the life of Lazarus. He never speaks so that it's recorded in the pages of Scripture. Absolutely silent. And we know that he had to say something because whatever he said was compelling because verse 11, on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Some were believing. Says one writer, Lazarus had become Jesus' star witness. And I find that amazing because as I read the Gospels, I cannot find anything outstanding about Jesus, about, excuse me, about Lazarus. It seems he never said anything worth recording and perhaps he never did anything worth recording. And yet he ended up being one of the greatest witnesses for Christ. Why? The answer is not in what Lazarus did for Jesus. The answer is in what Jesus did for Lazarus. And when we look at Lazarus, we see a man who was prepared by Christ, transformed by Christ, and then used by Christ. His life was turned inside out, upside down for Christ. One day after this meal, Jesus was celebrated as he went into Jerusalem. Verse 12, on the next day, the large crowd heard. They took the palm branches, shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Four days after that, Jesus washed the disciples' feet in the upper room. The day after that, he was tried and crucified. Two days later, he was resurrected. Then he appeared to some of the disciples a few days later, perhaps a week, perhaps a little bit more. He met with the disciples in Galilee and he publicly restored Peter for Peter's denial at the cross. John 21. And he asked, Jude, asked Peter three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? It was a question that articulated what was exposed at the meal at Simon's house. Jesus was not asking Peter for comparisons with others. He was simply asking about the genuineness of Peter's love. 
It was a good question for Peter. It was a good question at Simon's house. And it's a good question for us. A question that demonstrates our preparedness for worship this week and every week to follow. Do I love Jesus? How much do I love Him? Is my love for Him growing? And am I prepared to rejoice in Him alone as the resurrected Savior? Only one is worthy of devotion. Time is short. Let us, like Mary, be lavish and poured out in our love for Christ. Father, thank you this morning for this word. For the reminder from this simple story about what the world would call folly and wastefulness and you call lavish and appropriate devotion. Might our devotion for Christ be just as lavish, just as extravagant, and just as obvious that we have been with the Savior in whose name we pray. Amen.